0: Hey, listeners, I'm your host, Daniel Schroeder, and this is the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Each episode, I'll share a beer or two from one of San Diego's best breweries with a leader from the biotech community as we try to make sense of the science behind some of the amazing biotech companies that call San Diego home. For this episode, I was joined by Tom Hollum, the CEO of Palisade Bio. During our conversation, we tried some wine, yes wine, from a winery with a very special connection to the company. We talked about Tom's background and unique path that set him up to lead Palisade, what the company is working towards now, and we also got his take on the San Diego life science landscape. Tom, it's great to see you. Really appreciate you making time to come on the Biotech and Breweries podcast. And I kind of accentuate the word breweries there because we are not actually drinking anything from a brewery today, which is a departure from the usual format. Uh, We are drinking some uh, what I think is going to be fantastic wine. And there's a backstory to that. And so I guess before we get into your background and uh, talk about Palisade Bio, maybe we start off with you explaining how you tricked me or, or kind of got me to drink wine with you today instead of beer. <laughs> so,
1: thanks for having me Dan. It's uh yep. this awesome. So, you, you and I were chatting about, hey, what what brewery, brewery should we uh get wine for 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 the podcast. And I made the comment that you know Latitude 33, I've got a great connection there, I really love the, the the beer, and it was like this light bulb went off in my mind. I said, well, "Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about wine? Our, our chief medical officer, um, in addition to being uh, a brilliant physician and great pharmaceutical strategist, happens to also own a winery, and he really makes, he makes very good wine. And uh, and I said, well, what would happen if we departed from the, reg- the regular uh, brew and instead tried to uh, enjoy a, a good glass of the red stuff?
0: I think when you know one of the C-level executives at a company is is on as a side job has a successful winery um, in a nice area of California. It's not like he's got one in his backyard. This is like a, a legitimate yeah. winery in wine country. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to disagree. And I'm yeah. I'm excited. I'm, I've already had a little bit of the, the cab, and it's it's great. So we're off to a good start. Yeah, uh,
1: you know, and so you know, and it's it's so cool because he he has um, so. Uh, uh, as, so he and I work together every day. Right. And he has this photographic memory for like remembering things like he can um, remember a scientific paper from 15 years ago that'll talk about the most arcane molecular pathway about the RAS receptor binding this protein. And he'll know what in like he'll mention the affinity off the top of his head because his memory is so good. But the most interesting thing is that his memory is the same for tasting wine. Like he and I could have tasted a wine six years ago at, you know, um, some random small restaurant. And he'll be able to tell you what notes were in that wine and where it was grown. And like, and it's amazing. And he kind of takes that expertise and then puts that love into kind of the own wines that he produces at his winery.
0: That's great. And uh, it's, I mean, I, I've never operated a winery or worked at a winery, but it seems like it's a full-time job. So the fact that he can do it kind of as a side job along with his other full-time job, obviously he's got a team, I'm sure to help him at this point, but that's, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's kind of cool because, you know, he, he makes some of the, uh, just Knowing him about it, like he's got a, a staff that runs the winery and runs the tasting room. They've got a tasting room in Seal Beach. Now it's, it's called <laughs> Seal Beach Winery. Uh, they make all of their wines in Santa Barbara County. But um, the cool part is, is that like the real expertise comes in when he's making the contracts for the grapes he's purchasing and making the, you know, how, how to ferment. The, the grapes and then the quality and then the blending and the aging and all that kind of stuff, he brings his expertise to bear. And then like the, the day-to-day operations, you know, he, he's got a staff of people that run
0: that. No, that's great. That's, it's definitely impressive. I think it's like you, you kind of have this, you, everyone thinks of working on a winery or owning a winery as being this, this really romantic kind of like almost like an end game to a career. It's like you, you maybe make it in a different industry and then you get to go spend your time on a winery property, which is just always beautiful. So right, he, he's not quite doing that by yeah. choice, I'm sure, but, yeah. um, but it's cool. That he's got that, got that going. I'm sure it's fun to, to get up there and spend some time there.
1: It is, it is you know, uh, it, it's really cool to, to go up there, you know, in particular, like um, I've gone and visited Santa Barbara with him once or twice while he's crushing, like when they're, when they're pulling grapes off the vines and, uh, you know, going through the process of, of crushing the grapes. And, you know, the, one of the great, um, wines that we're tasting is a, a Pinot Noir from 2015. And it's uh, unbelievable. And the coolest thing about this wine was, um, when they were, um, if you remember Cal- back in the, you know, from about 2011 to 2015, there was this really horrible drought in California and, you know, the reservoirs were at some of their lowest points and the, the wine, um, the uh, grapes, the grapes get more character the more you stress them out. The, the more concentrated the flavors get. And 2015 was kind of the end, the, the 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 pinnacle, if you will, of the the last really bad drought we had. And so the the grapes, the Pinot Noir grapes that were coming off in Santa Barbara County, were like these little raisiny things. So there wasn't a lot of wine that was produced that year, but the wine that was produced is like off the charts good. Yeah. And yeah. And so that was uh, when we were talking about thinking about what to, to drink today. I was like, ah, I've got two, couple bottles of the 2015 that are epic. This is this is great.
0: Yeah, my uh, my in-laws are really into wine, and so my, and my uh, my father-in-law specifically is like he's the, he's the one that when you go to the, you go to wine tasting and he will spit it out as opposed to drinking it, where I'm usually just like enjoying myself and just kind of right. for the social aspect of it. But he takes it seriously. Like he doesn't want to have too much wine in the system to where it starts to kind of um, you know, impact his judgment on the wine. But he he always says that the best wine is a Pinot Noir and the worst wine is a Pinot Noir because it's, <laughs> so, difficult, it's so difficult to make a good one. Yeah. Uh, but this one seems, this is a good one for sure. I like it.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing that he can do all the things that he does uh, in in his day job and still, you know, have the time to you know, run a winery.
0: Yep. Well, this is great. So we'll try the wine as we're talking. Um, so I guess, so from there, you're obviously at Palisade Bio currently. You've been there for a yeah. while. But we'd love to hear about how you got your start in the biotech world prior to that.
1: Oh, man. Um, so I'm a, a scientist. You know, my my background is... You know, my true first true love was really science um, from, I, I probably go back to remembering in second grade, like all the way back that long, I was just a little kid and um, I love doing science experiments. So I convinced my a second grade teacher to let me take my science book home for the summer. And like, it, it made my mother sit down and do every single experiment in the, the science book, like all over the summer vacation. And so, uh, my background is I I grew up in a small town in Illinois, uh, went to the university of Illinois and, uh, had a, get a, got a degree in biology and was, uh, really interested in the kind of the intersection of molecular biology and neuroscience and, and behavior. And, um, ended up getting a PhD. I, uh, got, was recruited to UC Davis to, to go there for graduate school. I was uh, uh, almost certainly headed to Boston for graduate school. And uh, I got offered to have an interview at UC Davis and on a February day when when I left Illinois, when it was literally below zero outside and seven, eight hours later, I was waiting underneath a palm tree for an an interview at UC Davis. I was like,
0: huh? (laughs) Things life could Austin be. Boston is cold. <laughs> right. No doubt. No
1: doubt. Right. So uh did a did a PhD in uh in neuroscience, studying uh uh, uh pathways uh, of cell cell molecular destruction after neuronal injuries, and uh ended up Going to run a translational science group at a at a biotech company out in the East Coast. Um, uh, cut my teeth running clinical studies there, and ultimately um, ended up going back and get an MBA as well. I uh, went back and got an MBA at USC, and um, have uh, been very fortunate to have a number of great positions, and ultimately land back at Palisade Bio here uh, a number of years ago, and became CEO almost five years ago now.
0: So you obviously learned this you kind know, have a science background. You w- went and worked in the field for a while and then decided to get an MBA from a great business school for sure. USC. What um, was that a strategic move where you kind of saw maybe a future leading a company or was it, um, I guess what led to deciding to oh. do that? That's, that's, Oh man. A directional change a little bit.
1: You know, it's a great question. Um, I, um, never, ever in my lifetime saw myself running a biotech company. I, so i always saw myself as the scientist as the the guy who is the chief scientific officer maybe someday like the, the 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 one helping whisper in the ear of the ceo to ha- how to do to, to do all the science cool science stuff um but i was always a uh, kind of a uh, a businessman at heart uh, you know for my entire life and an entrepreneur in a number of different things and, and um for me i realized that my business acumen w- w- I enjoy the business side of it, probably even more so than the the scientific side. And that to really understand what it's going to be like in the boardroom, have that the executive chops, I needed to go back and get an MBA. And, um, you know, that was transformative, right? It was transformative in that, you know, I I have this, I have a different understanding of Business front than just being a scientist in business, than actually going back and getting the the, the basic understandings of what's really going on uh, in the business world. It was that was important, and it's funny, right? What I did with that is I transitioned. I transitioned from being a scientist into um, advertising. I went into uh, marketing and advertising and started uh, working with advertising agencies in New York City, like um, Ogilvy and Saatchi and Saatchi, just huge, huge um, uh, advertising names. Yeah. and, and was fortunate to really learn from a, a great mentor and in his, his team, he actually was pretty really good at building teams and um, learned how to think about creating a label and how to market that label. And what, what, what we need, what you needed to do to um, at the scientific and medical level to get a successful drug and, and, and message it when you're, launching the drug and ultimately trying to drive revenues yeah uh you know i was, I was working on brands that we were doing 4.2 billion dollars in annual revenues every year right these were um massive um, sales efforts and you know having great mentors and, and learning the business from that side hands-on was very different. It was a very different skill set than coming at this from a scientist level and thinking about the science. But at the end of the day, whatever you can say in advertising, you can't say it unless it's on the label. And then the scientists are what put the words on the label for the drug. So it's it's a marriage.
0: Yeah. Well, and so it's interesting. A lot of times scientists are, are not the most outgoing and extroverted people by nature. Yeah. Um, you, you strike me as being more of an you know extrovert and kind of someone that enjoys communicating and you obviously worked in like advertising and then in a marketing kind of, uh, role, which most people that have a science background, that's like the last thing that they want to do. So it's kind of an interesting, yeah. uh, career move that you made at that point.
1: It's interesting you say that, right? So, um, the, you're, it's very good, uh, observation and intuition here. So if you, if you go back, uh, one of the things that like, you know, when you're learning about your own personality, uh, one of the things that's done in the past, I've done in the past, is take the Myers-Briggs personality test. And there's sure. like the E is the extrovert and the I is the introvert. Yep. Like every time I've ever taken that test, I am 100% extrovert. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get my energy yeah. from the world around me and try to get yep. it back, right? Yeah. Yep. So to your point, right, it, uh, it being the the face of a of a company and you know a publicly traded fated, publicly traded company it it feels natural and it's something i really enjoy and, and it's, to, it's a, to,
0: a requirement and, too for that for that type of a role yeah what, but to my to your
1: question earlier like i never saw myself as that it was something that i think um it wasn't an aspiration of mine but it was people that were around me that said hey you're going to be really good at this keep doing this and lo and behold someday i'm uh, I'm, I'm doing this now
0: yeah so, all right. So you kind of walk us through your background. You're at Palisade Bio. Now you joined, if I remember correctly, in 2014? Yeah, that's right. Okay. You know,
1: I, uh, I joined, um, I was originally introduced to the, uh, to the company through a, a friend of mine and, you know, someone I went to business school with. And uh, he at the time was a partner at a venture capital firm. And uh, he he was helping run a number of different components there. And he gave me a call. And I remember where I was when he made the phone call uh, and said, hey, I've got this really cool uh, biotech company that is young. It's coming out of UCSD. They've got this really cool science. Will you take a look at it? Sure, you know, and I, I've I've looked at some deals from him before, um, and and it came up. He sent me a bunch of materials, maybe a slide deck and a couple of publications, and basically I spent the next three days, probably three days almost nonstop, um, reading the scientific publications of a gentleman by the name of Geert Schmidt Schoenbein and Doctor David Hoyt. Those are the kind of the two I'll call them medical and scientific founders of our company. And I just was enthralled at the science. Like it was so deep. It was like, it wasn't like scratching the surface understanding. It was they have 30 plus scientific publications on what the fundamental science of this company is based on. And, and I remember calling them up and I'm like, Greg, this is, this is the biggest thing I've ever read about in, in my life since it's like immunotherapy. It's, it's, it's transformative. Is this, is this real? How'd you guys find this? And he said, well, you know, same, my take was the same thing. It's like, uh, why is no one else doing this? It's just intuitive uh, in that it's elegant and um, it's very easy to understand. But at the same time, it's very robust in the kind of repetition of the data and how it repeats itself over and over time. And so uh, I, I helped him and the rest of the the company at that time uh, from some of their regulatory filings and their clinical strategy. And lo and behold, I ended up um, they I ended up becoming a consult to the company. And then they asked me to join full time and then ultimately uh, became CEO about five years ago.
0: And so you guys are a public, public company currently. Was yep. it public when you joined or is that something that you kind of helped the company um Transition through. Yeah, it was a
1: private company when I when I joined. You know, and it was. I think that was. I'm um, taking the company public is single handedly one of the most important things that we were able to do as a company. Right. Um, we were very much born out of San Diego. Um, if you look at, uh, I would say, as a private company, almost all of our our stockholders were San Diego or Denver Bay based. Um, you know, we have these really interesting pockets of high net worth individuals uh, that that have helped invest and support uh, the company, and you know have got us to where we are today. You know, and and I and I and I take this that responsibility really seriously. Like, and I when I how do I say this? I mean, um, we we weren't funded by you know X Y Z venture capital firm right? When, when we did a, a raise, we would raise, let's call it something like seven to $10 million down, dollars in, in a round in San Diego. And we would pitch the the local investors, the local high net worth individuals. And I'd, I'd meet them. I'd get to know them. It was personal, right? I would shake their hand and say, this is, this is important. I'm going to be a good steward of your money. I'm going to uh, do everything I can to make this company and the science a success. And, you know, that's a this company was born out of San Diego, in, in, in from the university, from the people, from the network, uh, in every every regard.
0: So, was most of the fundraising done through high net worth and um, kind of angel investor type type folks, or was, there, was so there wasn't any more traditional VC money that came in?
1: Well, so I would say there's kind of three big um steps, if you will, in the in the company, the maturity of the company. The first couple steps were um through a number of high net worth individuals that invested in the company here in San Diego. And then um we were introduced, we were we were in the process of doing a crossover round to try and take the company public. And we were introduced to a hospital system in Arizona. And um uh, having met that group was transformative for for the company. It was kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a, a true institutional investor, right? It's not, you know, the, um, it's not, you know, Orbimed, it's not RA Capital, um, but it is uh, a, a very sophisticated group of uh, healthcare professionals that have access to a, a large amount of, uh, of financing and have the ability to um, um, invest in what they see as really promising. And it was uh, we've developed a great relationship with the hospital system now. And you know, I, I, one of my favorite moments ever uh, was our executive team was presenting to their board of directors and in their, in their management team. We'd probably done, it's probably the third or fourth meeting and we're in the, their conference room, their boardroom. The board and um, we're, we're kind of wrapping up and we're kind of doing the chit chat around uh, at the end of the meeting. And I, I make the comment to, I think the CEO at the time. Yeah, And I say, hey, you know, so, you know, I, they told us how interested they were and how much they liked the science. I'm like, so are you going to do any, any key opinion leaders or market research? He's like, we are the key opinion leaders. Like <laughs> we know this business. We, we know we will use this drug if it gets approved. I'm like,
0: right. Oh, oh right. That's what you guys do for a living. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they were, they were a, a step ahead of that question, I guess. Right. Like we, they right. kind of, they knew the answer easily. It was almost like written on the wall.
1: Yeah. So, you know, to that, to that point, that was kind of our, our, our first institutional
0: round. Okay. Yeah. Which is unique because a, a yeah. lot of times to your point, a lot it's, it's not many life science companies in general are extremely cash intensive. So it's, it's rare that you can get as far as you guys did. It sounds like without the more traditional, um, kind of venture round.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, we, we're a small team, very small team, um. You know, and I think I have conversations with investors frequently and they're like, how do you guys do this on on, on such a little budget? And we're like, well, because we're really um, cautious of what we spend our money on. Like, it's very, very um, well thought out. There, there's not not really any waste. And we run our trials in a way that's really cash efficient. You know, we, we partner with the right hospitals and, um, you know, in, when it comes to running clinical studies, some clinical studies are are really difficult to run. They have to f- go and search hard, long and far for, uh, for patients. And the good news about running clinical studies in the surgery setting is that every hospital in America, all 5,000 of them have a surgery patient scheduled for 7 30 AM incision tomorrow morning. I know where the patients are. I know how to find them. And, you know, we as a team can go capture them and bring them into our clinical trials. So from being um, the perspective, being capital efficient, you know, all of that data goes in their medical records as part of their hospitalization, et cetera. So it's very, um, uh, capital efficient.
0: Yep. And I guess a great way to segue into, you know, the next topic I wanted to ask you about what, what is, what is the company working towards and kind of what, um, what are you guys hoping to achieve?
1: Yeah, so what do we do? Um, what do you do? <laughs> uh, we, uh, we do two things um, but the probably the most important thing is we develop our, our lead drug. it's called lb 1148. Um, still got one of the sciency names after it. It's the birthday of our scientific founder. All right uh, yeah there was there was a moment we we're all sitting around like what do we call the drug? And I'm like well, whose birthday? <laughs>
0: So what, 1148, how does that work out in, in 1948? Is January 1st,
1: 1948. Of,
0: January 1st. I, I was going to say either it's the month of November or it's January 1st, but okay.
1: All right. Right. Kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's literally a new year's day baby. <laughs> yep. Cool. Yeah. And, um, so we developed that. And the other thing that we do in conjunction is we develop a pipeline of drugs that are focused on, and that both of them, these drugs do all these drugs do the same thing. Uh, which is they try and protect the patient or, or patients or people from the kind of really dangerous impacts their digestive enzymes can have on their body. And, you know, the, our lead asset is what we talk about most of the time, because it's this far down along a uh, clinical pathway. It's kind of transitioning from being a phase two drug into a phase three and has great data, very, you know, uh, strong regulatory pathway and safety. Um, but then underneath that really cool lead asset that's way out in front, we have this cool pipeline, this platform technology that we've in licensed from the University of California, San Diego, where we can measure digestive enzyme leak in the blood of patients. That to my knowledge, we're the only people on the planet that can do that. And it is this fascinating, science that, um, no one really thinks about on, on a day-to-day basis, but it really, this, you know, I'll call it leaky gut quote unquote, um, can have profound impact on diseases that people don't even know they're suffering from. And, and oftentimes the, the, the data that as, as I see it is really, uh, trans it can be a, a transformative way to look at how, health is impacted over a long time by like this insidious digestive enzyme leak coming from the gastrointestinal tract.
0: So how many, how many people would you say like in the United States? I mean, is it, is it a hard thing to quantify the number of people that, that suffer from from leaky gut, I mean, and that there may be different levels to it, or maybe, maybe there's, you you tell me, I'm I'm just kind of guessing here, but is there, Maybe there's a lot of people that have a real small issue, maybe that doesn't, doesn't cause other larger issues, but there's some people I'm sure this is a debilitating problem for them.
1: Yeah. Debilitating. And, you know, and, and so um, let me give you an example. So um, from leaky gut perspective, one of the things that our scientists have shown is that there are a portion of diabetic patients that in my mind, have very clear diabetes because they've got leaky gut syndrome and they don't know it. And and the way it works out is, um, you know, diabetes just to to, to set the stage, right? It's multifactorial, right? You can have a, um, you know, type one or type two. So I'm really talking about type two diabetes. Um, But there is clearly a percentage, uh, but when I look at the data of patients that have um, digestive enzyme leak that is, coming from the gastrointestinal tract and it's leaking into the blood of patients and think about that for a moment. Like what do digestive enzymes do they're, they're there to break down the food we eat into, you know, molecules, tiny, tiny molecules that we can absorb and, and use as fuel and building blocks. And so when these digestive enzymes come from the gastrointestinal tract and they float through the bloodstream, what do they do? they, um, have the ability to clip. In other words, let's um, think about enzymes being a little Pac-Man, a little chewer, chewing up things. And they come into contact with the insulin receptor in, in the cells of, of patients. And what do they do? Well, they just chew it up the cell still thinks the insulin receptor is there, but now you've got the part that is responsible for binding to insulin and, and, and having the insulin signal bind to it and changing its conformation and, and, and changing the way that the body uses fuel. Uh, and suddenly the patient is now, quote unquote, insulin insensitive. Now that why are they insulin insensitive? Well, I think our research has shown they're insensitive because their digestive enzymes cleave the extracellular domain of the insulin receptor. And we've got ex vivo experiments where we can um, inhibit the, we can take plasma, like plasma samples from a real di- real diabetes patient and put it on a plate of cells and just destroy the insulin receptors on this, the plate. And then you take a drug, uh, a protease inhibitor, you take the same plasma sample, now you spike it with a protease inhibitor. And now the proteases are, you um, uh, are inhibited and you take the same plasma and you put it back on the, the plate of insulin cells and the insulin cells aren't damaged and they completely retain their function. Wow. So what does this experiment yeah. show you? It shows you that there are people out there was, there is most likely pa- diabetic patients that have diabetes being driven because they've got leaky guts.
0: If someone is struggling with their has diabetes is, I mean, how do they, what, is, what are the steps that they should be taking in order to figure out if it's really caused by leaky gut syndrome? Well, um, uh, honestly, there's nothing they can commercially do that's
1: available. Um, we have the technology, so we've we've patented the technology to be able to, um, so think about this if you're a diabetes patient, you walk into your, your, your general, general practitioner's office today or endocrinologist today and say, hey, doc, I was listening to this podcast and I've learned that my diabetes could be driven by my leaky gut syndrome. And the, his general protection is going to laugh at
0: but Like, yeah, good luck with that. This might be this. Well, we might be letting the cat out of the bag here. We might be, you know, the whole world is going to find out that they, they have a solution to the diabetes. It's just, it's really not diabetes that they're suffering from. So this is, this could be, this could be world changing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the cool part here is that the doc doesn't know this, this is our science and he doesn't have access to it. And the doc might say, listen, I can look at a, I can send your blood sample away to lab core today and test your blood. And I'll show you that trypsin doesn't correlate at all with, um, your diabetes. And that doctor is right based on that test. And what, what our bio cool biotechnology is, is that our technology allows us to measure the activity of those enzymes, that the pre- enzymes occur in many different forms from a precursor form to an active form and inactive forms and many more. And what we showed in our, our research was that it's the whether or not the enzymes are active, whether they're actively degrading things that matters. And if you have an active digestive enzyme in your blood, bad, they don't belong there. (laughs) Right. Sure. (laughs) Like think about like what you had for lunch today. Right. Like the the enzymes that are in your gut, they're destroying and chewing up whatever you ate today. Uh, Getting those in your blood, just bad things happen.
0: Yeah. No, understandably. So definitely. Yeah. Um, So, and you kind of touched on a little bit, but you've got the, uh, the cleverly named LB1148 or 1148. And then I know you also have um, an assay that you've kind of developed as well that you, you kind of told me previously, you don't get to talk about it as much. It's not maybe going to be the breadwinner of the, of the company, but yeah. um, we'd love to hear about that as well. So that, that, that's kind of that assay,
1: right? So we, we have this technology um, that allows us to measure the digestive enzyme activity of, in the blood of patients. And that based with that technology, what we do is we um, we kind of do, do multiple, multiple things, right? We um, learn how to measure what diseases are being driven by um, these digestive enzymes. And then the same assay, we can turn around and use it to measure and detect what drugs are efficacious in preventing damage to those tissues based on inhibition of those digestive enzymes. And ultimately we hope use it as a biomarker for understanding which patients have the disease based on leaky gut, this leaky gut, and uh, further, you know, hopefully use that to titrate drug responses, understand patients for inclusion in the clinical studies, et cetera. So it's really a, a cool technology.
0: Well what else, what anything else about the company that you would want people to be aware of or to maybe to share with uh with listeners? Yeah. I mean, I
1: think one of the things that's most important for me and you know for for people that are learning about the company is to learn about that lead drug, lb 1148 and what um why we think it's so cool. Like um for for patients, right? There's these huge unmet needs in the marketplace. The first is that for anyone undergoing major surgery—heart surgery, gastrointestinal surgery, pelvic surgery, like gynecological surgery—they they um, they they're, they, they're going to be hospitalized. And they're going to go in major surgery, and that there are complications that can happen from that surgery. The first is that they can't go home from after their surgery from the hospital until they've been able to go to the bathroom. And that's the first one. And the second thing is, is that they have this potential that there's going to be a scar tissue that forms in their abdominal cavity, and that scar tissue, at the end of the day, can uh, cause lifelong disruptions in their bowel movements, in their pain, and in, in, the, in their abdominal cavity. And you know, if they're women in particular, in their fertility. And and we have this drug um, called L B eleven forty eight that in clinical studies has shown to be very safe and but also very effective in that it has the ability to um, essentially return bowel function after surgery by over a day and uh, have a profound reduction in the uh, number of adhesions that have formed that's a scar tissue that forms in the abdominal cavity that can uh, cause patients to be um, you know uh, have these lifelong complications
0: And so you said it's entering phase three, uh, trials. When does that, when does that begin?
1: So, you know, we're, we're always in the the trying, we haven't given an official guidance about when that'll kick off yet. Um, but, uh, we're working towards that every day. We, earlier this year, we read out a really good, profound, um, data, um, from a phase two clinical study. And so the question is, what is that data? Right? So we ran a randomized double blind placebo controlled clinical study Uh, looking at patients that were randomized to either drug or placebo. And we measured kind of after gastrointestinal surgery, how long does it take for the time to happen from the end of surgery to, to the time of return of bowel function. And we show that patients that got the drug had bowel function return uh, over one day sooner. And kind of the worst patients, patients had the longest return of bowel function uh, at the 75th percentile. They had actually a day and a half improvement in, in the drug drug treated patients. I mean, this is um, you know, if you're, it's so rare that people really think about this. So think about you know, if you're a lo- you or your loved one or or someone you know is undergoing major surgery. And they have to sit in the hospital until they can have a bowel movement, particularly in today's COVID, right? No one, in the world of COVID, no one wants to be in the hospital a a minute longer than they have to. Sure. Yeah. And and now you have someone that went major surgery and they're waiting five, six days without a bowel movement. Like think how painful and uncomfortable that is for these patients to have their gut just get back into gear, start working and just so they can be discharged from the hospital. Like when you, especially when you talk to the doctors that round in the hospital at two in the morning, you know, and, and talk to Mrs. Smith and, Hey, Mrs. Smith, how are you feeling? She's like, Oh, my stomach hurts. I'm so bloated. I don't oh, need another hour. I can't, oh, I gotta have a bowel movement. Right. It's awful for you. you want to go home. I want to go home. Right. And and so what we are able to do is, is have a single administration of a drug prior to surgery return bowel function back over a day sooner, right? That's a day less of suffering, a day less of spending hopefully time in that hospital. And, um, you know, it, it hopefully will be um, very impactful in, you know, hopefully being able to take that data, take it to get the drug to get approved by the FDA uh, with pivotal clinical studies and uh, commercialize it.
0: So this commercialization, is that, you know, best case scenario, is that maybe two years, three years out? What, what's the timeline? It's a couple of
1: years out. You know, it's really years. hard to say for sure. Um, yeah. You know, particularly in, in the post-COVID world that we live in, um, yeah. prior to to COVID, it was very easy to uh, enroll cl- clinical studies from a speed perspective and kind of, a, I'll call it a, a cadence. Like there was always a, a churning of these patients coming through a right. clinical study. Um, and it's much more stochastic now. Um, where, um, you know, for example, let's say we're running a clinical trial in in one of the sites is Miami, and Miami has a huge increase in COVID, you know, uh, surgeries, and they have a hospital capacity problem, and they they now shut off clinical trials. It's very um, um, different running uh, clinical studies in the COVID world, and so what we've had to do is be strategic. We have to understand um, what are the drivers, and they collect the data and say, what are the drivers that impact clinical studies in the COVID or post COVID world? And more than anything, it's, it's about um, geography and distributing that risk, right? Understanding that the um, that what we generally haven't had so far is a surge across the U S all equally everywhere at the same time. So by now having, um, patients enrolled in places like Burlington Vermont and Miami and Houston and Los Angeles and all over the world uh, world and US in different populations at different times hopefully we can maintain a much more steady uh, impact of enrollment on our clinical studies
0: yeah it seems that the geographic diversity it wasn't something that you thought about uh, you know pre covid yeah but but now it's almost become a necessity. I'm sure it's hard for some companies to figure out a way to, to navigate that need. But it sounds like you guys already have that in place, which is, which yeah, is great.
1: That's right. You know, in fact, it's a, I'll give you an insight, which was, um, you know, pre-COVID, what we would try and do is we'd try and um, uh, minimize travel, minimize costs by keeping everyone in the same place, right? You know, run a study with six sites in Southern California, six sites in south texas and another six sites in, in florida and and have it be you know very concentrated in where those sites were from a from a manpower perspective and now it becomes very different like well now you distribute that uh much more broadly across uh geography
0: yeah well that's awesome so i i got i'm gonna interrupt the conversation for a second and say I'm, I'm a fan of the wine the, the pinot is fantastic Fantastic. <laughs> you you've been doing most of the talking, so I don't think you've had a chance to really have much of it. But it, yeah. I think you're already familiar. But it's it is is excellent. The Cabernet is great too, but I think the Pinot is my my. If I had to pick one of the two, that's the one I would, I'd have to go with. I think it's hard to hard to not be a fan of that one. Thanks. Yeah, me
1: too. It's a uh, he knows how to make a Pinot.
0: He sure does. He's great. Yeah. Hopefully, he knows how to make uh you know do some things for the company as well. And that's just his his, his uh, talent is not limited to just the world of wine. I'm sure, I'm sure it's not.
1: It's not. So I'll give you i uh, um, I'll give you a, uh, an analogy. Um, so our, 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 I think I've alluded to this before, but you know, our, our chief medical officer, he's literally a genius. I know I, I've, in my lifetime, I've probably met three geniuses um, <laughs> and he's one of them. And, and it, it's to the point where like every now and then there'll be like, some you know unusual like family member or something that'll have some weird medical problem and I'll and I'll be like hey mike you know can you look at this scan or this picture and he'll take a look at it and he goes oh it's this and every time he uh, three times now I've said there is no way it's that <laughs> I'm like are you kidding this is not a zebra this is not the most bizarre unusual thing it's like and he is three for three for being right. And, he, and he's like wow. instantaneous in his, his diagnosis. It doesn't have it, to, it doesn't
0: take him long. He just He just instincts.
1: Right. And so I've gotten to this point now where I'm like, I just, I, whatever he says. I, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and I mean, one of these things was like something that happens, like literally one in a million patients. And he, as a, he's a radiologist, right? So he took one picture, look, he took a single look at it and he's like, no, it's this. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? There's no way it's that. Wow. He's like, no, no, no. And he sent me the scientific paper in like two minutes of like this is because he, he has
0: photographic memory, so he's he knows under- where to go to get the evidence or get the the research. Right. Think about that. Think about a radiologist with a photographic memory. If I had a photographic <laughs> memory, I would be taking over the world right now. I feel like he could do he could do anything. Right.
1: <laughs> and he's just a doctor and a chief medical officer and a winemaker and.
0: That's it. Just those, just those three, just things, those three you know. things. Hey. And it seems like he's knocking it out of the park on all three. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Um. So what, what would you, to kind of wrap up, I guess a little bit here, what, what is your take on the San Diego life science ecosystem? And you, you guys are based in Carlsbad. So you're kind of, you maybe you know, traditionally the Torrey Pines and Sorna Valley area is kind yep. of viewed as the, the epicenter of the San Diego life science ecosystem, but there's a growing number of companies in Carlsbad. You're not definitely not alone up there. Yeah. would um, love to get your take on on how the industry kind of here in San Diego uh, looks from your view.
1: You know, uh, to me um so what is it what is it that I, I think there are truly um three epicenters of biotechnology in the United States. Um Boston, Bay Area and San Diego. Now you can also make some other comments about some other areas in the East Coast corridor, New Jersey, New York, Philadelphia kind of corridor down to Maryland. But that is very different than what we have here in San Diego. And the great thing about San Diego is it's a community um, that, that when, there is a problem or a strategic choice that you have to make as a company. There's a network of people that we can lean on and learn from, from each other to be able to really um, navigate that. And, you know, it comes across in these really cool ways. Like, you know, I'll be, um, you know, I'll be on the tennis court at La Costa here and uh, be having a, you know, a conversation with, you know, another lawyer in biotech and, um, Talking about you know legal aspects of the pharmaceutical world and understand these these really um, get insights in how to navigate this very complex um, very risky business uh, of drug development and what you ultimately find is that. My my belief is it's mostly driven by the really high um, level of scientists coming out of the universities, right? Particularly, you know, uh, the research institutes that that we have here, and that it early on drew great scientists. It grew um, great. It drew um, great entrepreneurs, and kind of this culture of scientific innovation. And you know, it's been you know going on for a hundred years here, and and ultimately then. What this has sparked is a culture or a community of um, scientists, people that uh, and, and venture uh, venture funds that really want to um, nurture that community of these scientists, and then the entrepreneurs that kind of can take the, uh, the these discoveries and really turn them into businesses. Um, you know, there, there's a famous saying, you know, that, that you know people don't invest in ideas; they invest in businesses, right? And that some of the greatest scientific uh, ideas, you have to put them into a company uh, that can grow it and create value for, for that. I think that's really unique about San Diego. Um, it, it also means that what you, what I have, and I think many of us that live here have is a love for helping one another, Right? That, that it, it's not a it's not a, a take street, if you will. It's a really a two way street that you develop these relationships locally here, personal relationships. Right. And you understand h- how to help other people navigate that and, and, and you know, mentor your friends and colleagues along the way as well. And so I think that's part of the, the really cool nature of the, the biotech community here.
0: it it kind of in some ways feels like San Diego is still a little bit of an underdog almost. Like when you compare us to the Boston's and the San, San Francisco's obviously much smaller uh, city and, and um, we're kind of still coming up in a a way where, where there's, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of, it's almost like, you're not competing with your neighbor. You want you want your neighbor to win, and they want you to win, and you can kind of all hopefully create this ecosystem where maybe you attract some additional investment dollars and attract some talent, and it it benefits everyone. And it's not a case of of people getting jealous about other's success. It's kind of a a a, a much more genuine and kind of honest um, feel to the area. It seems.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think it has two, two components to that, to your point, the genuineness and honestness of it, right. Is um, I, I've never lived in a more casual city than San Diego. I mean, it, yeah, literally, we literally mean this like shorts and flip-flops here are the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> dress yeah. du jour of, <laughs> of the community. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that that genuine list doesn't come through in the seriousness that, you know, scientists and physicians and, you know, entrepreneurs taking and building companies in, in the area. And, and to your point, right, if you go to Boston or, or, or the Bay area, um, that's, there are already dozens, if not hundreds of established venture capital firms, there, there's very few, uh, local, um, well-established firms that are, they're here. And what that means is that, you know, it, it used to be, this is actually really true. It used to be that we would have to travel to those cities to the, to, to talk to the, to the institutional investors. Right. And what's happening is there's a transformation, right? We've even seen it accelerate um, in the last, even in the last six months, which is as we transition into this new COVID world, um, two things have happened. One, um, firms are no longer, uh, uh, companies and and investors are, think about Zoom meetings and um, telephone meetings as being the standard, right? It it is the way in which we learn to learn to communicate with each other and, and talk. And what that ultimately means then is that the capital and the the people become much more interested in in, in the early conversations with San Diego based companies as, as we're one, right? But it also is different in that they travel to see us now. Like I can tell you that explicitly, like that um that there used to be meetings that I would have to go to to one of the big cities to to have those conversations. And now they're coming here to meet with us in person. That's and great. but that all but all those conversations start through a relationship on the phone via Zoom. But you know when you talk about doing a you know a big financing or an investment, that those those final decisions are made in person.
0: Yeah, I, I would imagine um anytime you see a big exit or acquisition, IPO, whatever type, whatever it is that goes well, uh, that's got to make you that's got to make you feel good because you you see that there's other. You know companies in San Diego that are that are receiving the attention and the investment, and bringing more eyes to San Diego. I think, which is still, again, as we're we're still kind of in the underdog role a little bit. The more attention we can get, the better. The
1: more attention we can get, the better. And you know, uh, what I what I hope is that there is a a day in very near future where you know um, that we're on equal footing with those uh, those other areas. But at the same time, it, it kind of feels good to be the underdog, right?
0: I don't, I don't, I don't mind it. Yeah. I, I also, I would say that the, uh, the, the shorts and flip-flops thing, that's, yeah, it's definitely a casual town, but you know, part of the thing with that, I think if, you know, I, I talked to colleagues in New York and Boston, for example, and mm-hmm. especially this time of year, they wish they could be wearing shorts and flip-flops. So right. if, if those people are listening, you know, it's okay to be jealous. You can just It's okay it. to be jealous.
1: <laughs> you know, many of us are from areas where we had to <laughs> wear a lot more than that.
0: Yeah, sure i think the the, the usually the, the hardest thing here is just deciding if you have to put on a sweatshirt or not before you go outside not not, not anything heavier than that but right but tom this so has been, been great cool. i i really appreciate you coming on uh, this has been a fun conversation it's been great to to learn about the company and learn about you so and also thank you again for the delicious wine i've got some new favorites that i'll have to get you know stock up on my wife'll be happy to know that there's some leftover wine that she gets to to share with me tonight but uh really appreciate it Hey, you're so
1: welcome so much, Dan. This is a pleasure being here as always, you know, it's just uh, this was a fun conversation
0: and, you know, so so enjoyable. So thank you so much. Awesome. Me here. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Visit biotechandbreweries.com to stay up to date on the latest episodes.